Welcome to Sightseeing Japan, the podcast where we explore the land of powerful rhythm. I'm Paul Bresson. And I'm Jason Neeling. And if I sound a little hoarse today, I apologize. I have a little bit of a sore throat. Not a, not a great winter for me. Anyway, today we're talking about taiko, or Japanese drums. You might have heard the phrase taiko drums, but technically that's a little redundant because taiko is just the Japanese word for a drum, but it's used around the world to refer specifically to Japanese drums, of which there are many different kinds, and also to a form of ensemble drumming called kumidaiko, which we will get into. Paul, did you know that in Japan, Japanese drums are actually called wadaiko? I did know that. Because Japanese drums. Yeah, because taiko would just be any drum, but a wadaiko, the wa means Japanese. T turns to a D. Right. Because Japanese. Yep. We've talked about that in a bunch of different episodes about how consonants can change their sound when they're connected to other words. So we're going to be saying daiko a lot because when taiko is connected to other stuff, T becomes a D. So taiko is a very exciting thing to watch. It's a lot of energy and a really fun show, at least if we're talking about the Kumi Daiko that most non-Japanese are familiar with. Yeah, it's very energetic, very physical. Like you're not just standing there straight. Like if you've seen an American drumline, it's very kind of militaristic. You got to just stand up there straight and the form is kind of rigid, you could say. But in Taiko, you'll see people putting their whole body into it. Like they're really just slamming these sticks into these drums and it's a whole body thing. Yeah, and like a marching band, it's not just the music, it's choreography going on as well. Yeah. So definitely you want to see a taiko show as well as hear it. Yeah, it's a whole visual and auditory experience. Absolutely. Let's talk history. Oh, my favorite. Taiko have a mythological origin in Japanese folklore. I have an example. Let's hear the myth. Paul, does the word susano ring a bell to you? Mm, can't say that it does. I've mentioned it before in uh, the alcohol episode. Do you recall a certain kami rescuing a maiden from a dragon by getting it drunk on sake? That sounds kind of familiar. Yeah. That was Susano, the storm god. And he shows up in this story too. Okay. Apparently he was a bit of a rapscallion and he really upset his sister, Amaterasu. You've heard of her, right? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, she's... Big deal. She was the sun goddess. And, and the, the way that he upset her, that's a whole other story that we can talk about another time. <laughs> but he upset her so much that she ran into a cave. She rolled a boulder over the entrance of the cave and she said that she was never coming out ever. Never. Wow. Yep. So since she was the sun goddess, the world fell into endless night. No more sun. That sounds awful. Yeah. So the rest of the gods, the 800 gods of heaven and earth, came and begged her to come out because the sun is important. But they failed. So finally, a goddess named Ameno Uzume jumped onto the head of an empty sake barrel and started dancing. And if you've seen an empty sake barrel, they look a lot like drums. I heard she was dancing furiously. That's a good adverb for it. Yeah. Her feet drummed a lively rhythm on the barrel and the rest of the kami started to dance and sing. So imagine Amaterasu sitting there in her cave, listening to all this fun stuff going on outside, and she's just all alone, bored. 
So she went and peeked out to see what was going on out there. Apparently she caught her reflection in a mirror. And while she was distracted by the mirror, another god came and yanked her out of the cave. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. That's the story. Apparently Amaterasu is closely associated with mirrors. Have you heard that before? She's also called the goddess of mirrors. Yeah. I think when we did the Temples and Shrines episode, a mirror is a common... Shintai. Shintai. Yeah. At uh, shrines. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff relating her with mirrors. Seems like an interesting topic to explore sometime. Okay. So that's the mythology. And percussion instruments are generally the oldest instruments in any society. So drums in some form probably existed in Japan over 2,000 years ago. And there's evidence that even the very early days, people were using them for communication and in religious rituals. But at this time, those drums probably didn't look a lot like modern taiko. Yeah, the earliest evidence of what drums looked like in Japan comes from about the 6th century, because drums are made of wood and leather, so you can't just dig up a 2,000-year-old drum. They don't exist anymore. Yeah. So in the Gunma Prefecture they found these little statues of people playing drums. On one of them, they've got this barrel-shaped drum that's hung around their shoulders at hip height, and the guy's using a stick to play it, and that's where it really looks like it's starting to look like taiko. And they believe that influence came over from Korea and China. Maybe the designs of those drums came over because they're very similar to what they've been using in China. Yeah. And early on, these drums were used in various types of court music, one of which is called gagaku. And that one is still performed even today. Did you know that, Paul? No. They performed that at the Tokyo Imperial Palace. Okay. Yeah. I knew they still made drums for the emperor or for the palace. Yeah. So that makes sense. Yep. They also would have used drums to drive away evil spirits and pests that threatened crops. I'm kind of surprised that drums would scare... Well, I guess when I think pests, I think insects. They probably wouldn't care about drums, but rabbits and deer or whatever trying to eat your crops, they would get scared away by drums, I can imagine. Yeah, I would think so. Oh, get this. This is pretty cool. They believe that using drums to imitate thunder would stir up the spirit of rain. Like a rain dance or a rain song sort of thing. Okay. Isn't that cool? Yeah. Drums have also been used throughout history in festivals. We yes. talked in our festivals episode, Matsuri episode, about how festivals go way back to the earliest like harvest festivals. So they would use the drums to celebrate a successful harvest. And they're still used in all sorts of festivals these days. Yeah. On those big floats they make for a lot of festivals to roll down the streets they'll have drums in the floats yeah just keeping the beat all day yeah paul i got a fun fact for you okay there's this one festival in akita prefecture that's famous for having some of the largest taiko drums in the world okay it's insane like instead of a float the drum is the float basically <laughs> these things are about 12 and a half feet in diameter or 3.8 meters, and you're not reacting, Paul. 12 and a half feet in diameter. That's huge. That is huge. They have like a bunch of people sitting on top of the drum, and they have these super long poles that they're reaching down and hitting the drum head with. 
Pretty crazy. Wow. Yeah. I heard that drums uh, are made as big as cars. Oh, these are way bigger than cars. I I heard that, but like, as I was watching videos, I never saw anyone actually playing one that big. Yeah. I gotta go see what that looks like. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So in the 10th century, Japan had a bit less contact with Korea and China. So those imported drum styles started to evolve into a more uniquely Japanese style. And by the end of the Heian period, around the end of the 12th century, they had something more recognizable as modern-day taiko. In the 14th century, no theater was developed, and taiko were used as an accompaniment for that, not only for like drumming musical rhythms, but they would use these drums to mimic animal sounds or create sounds of wind or thunder or the sea. Like it was a kind of a multi-purpose sound effect machine. That's impressive. Yeah. So in feudal Japan during the Warring States period, especially in about the 16th century, taiko were used to motivate troops or call out orders, even set the marching pace. And they had specific drum calls to communicate their orders. So if they were advancing, I heard they'd often make a beat that got faster and then faster and then faster. And that would indicate to the troops, press forward, press forward. Yeah. I can imagine that being intimidating to the people they are pressing toward as well. Yeah. I think that was always kind of an idea behind it too. If you're holed up in a castle and you just hear boom, boom, boom coming from all around you outside, that wouldn't be the best feeling in the world. (laughs) Yeah. So then in the 17th century, kabuki theater, another form of traditional Japanese theater, was developed and taiko was used in that, similar to how it was used in no. So throughout history, drums have been used for all sorts of things, and they are still used for a lot of different things, including traditional theater, folk music. You'll see them at temples and shrines, festivals, and the way that they're used can really depend on the region. There's a lot of different styles, but you could say that they were popularized in the rest of the world by something called kumidaiko. So if you've seen taiko drums, this might be what comes to mind. This is an ensemble style of drumming. You've got a group of people, different types of drums, and they do those awesome super high energy performances that Paul mentioned in the beginning. Yeah. Kumidaiko was developed in 1951 by a Japanese man named Daihachi Oguchi. Yeah, he was originally a jazz drummer. But in 1951, he formed the first kumidaiko group called Osua Daiko, and he popularized it in Japan. It also probably helped that in the 70s, the Japanese government allocated funds to preserving Japanese culture. A lot of community taiko groups popped up in that period. And since then, it looks like around 4,000 groups have been formed in Japan. I saw all these numbers. There were all these places saying there's... 8,000 groups in Japan now. Yeah. And then I saw there's some sort of like national taiko association in Japan, and they've got 800 active groups. So there's at least 800. Well, that's just maybe up to 8,000. Right. I also saw a lot of conflicting numbers, but I would bet there are a lot more than 800 because those are just the ones that are like officially 
recognized by this association or whatever. Right. That's absolute low baseline number. Yeah. So that's a lot of group. You know, there's probably a few thousand groups in Japan. Yeah. They're all over the place. Yeah. Even with the US numbers too, I saw one place that's like, oh, there are 300. And then another website said there are a thousand of them. It's hard so, to get solid numbers because a lot of these are like smaller community groups. I mean, they're not all registered somewhere. You know, anybody can just form a group. Yeah. So I don't know if we mentioned what was really revolutionary about Kumi Daiko. It was the first time that these drums were used as a big ensemble like that, right? Right. I think it used to be like one drum or all the same drum playing the same thing. Right. And he transformed it to multiple drums playing different parts yeah. of the piece. Yeah. You could almost think of it, maybe this isn't the best way to think of it, but it's almost like if you took a drum set and split it out into a bunch of separate instruments and then duplicated a bunch of those and had one person playing each of those. Well, I mean, of. maybe you could think of like a marching band again. Where you've yeah, got, you've got yeah. the snare drums and the bass drum. and That's a much better way to think of it. The different pieces. Yeah. Um, I also saw that part of what helped Kumi Daiko become more visible globally is that during the 1964 Summer Olympics in Tokyo, it was featured during their Festival of Arts. Yeah. That's pretty cool. So tie in with our recent Olympics episode there. Yeah. Um, they're going to be doing all sorts of uh, cultural things, I'm sure, at the upcoming Olympics, too. Yeah, I bet. Paul, did you see anything about a group called Za Ondekoza? No. I thought this one was interesting. In 1969, this guy, Tageyasu Den, formed a group called Za Ondekoza okay. on the island of Sato, which is near Oh, near the Niigata. island guys. Yeah. yeah oh, okay. this is so cool. So Ondeko... You know what, where that word comes from? No. So ondeko is Sato dialect for onidaiko. Oh, demon drums? Yeah. Isn't that cool? <laughs> and he wanted to make taiko not just entertainment, but a way of life. So he went all over rural areas in Japan, recruited a bunch of young people, and he set up like this camp, almost a commune. People were all living together, training together, and he had a very rigorous training regime for them. That included marathon running. Yeah. Sounds like a really intense... Lots of strength training, plus the stamina long distance. Yeah. This whole situation is starting to remind me of other Japanese things, like sumo. The young guys, you come to the stable, you live that way of life. Yeah. Or even like geisha. You come when you're young, and you train, and you live only in this little world. It's a very Japanese way of doing it, I guess. Yeah, that didn't occur to me, but there are a lot of similarities there. Uh, So one of the members of this group eventually formed a new group, Kodo, in 1981. Did you hear about Kodo? I've heard of them, yeah. They're now one of the most famous taiko groups in the world, and they still perform even today. That's awesome. 40 years later? Yeah. (laughs) Pretty cool. So we're going to expand more on modern taiko drumming later. But first, I want to talk about some of the types of taiko. And there are a ton of different types. We don't have time to go into all of them, but I'll try to give you some idea of the variety out there. So in general, taiko will have a drum shell. They're going to have heads on both sides of the body made of animal skin. And there's going to be a sealed resonating cavity. So the resonating cavity is the area inside the drum, and 
like I said, it's sealed for taiko, which is pretty different from Western drums. Like if you're looking at a drum set, you got the bass drum, the snare drum, and tom-toms, and they usually have little holes in the shells so that air can escape. So when you hit the head, it can vibrate much more freely, and you're going to have like a longer resonant tone. But with taiko, since it's sealed, the air doesn't have anywhere to go, so you get more of a thud sort of sound than like a long ringing thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely from listening to it, yeah. So, like I said, there are so many taiko, they're kind of hard to categorize, but they can be roughly divided into two categories. The most popular one is something called Bio Uchi Daiko. These ones have that animal skin head stretched over the body, and then they're nailed to the body with these tacks. And there are a ton of them, like they go all the way around, that head is not going anywhere. So these ones cannot be tuned. Once the head is on there, it's on there. If you want to change the head, you have to go to a skilled drum maker to get that replaced. The most popular type of Bio Uchi Daiko is the Nagado, which means long body. I feel like this is the kind of drum that's going to come into most people's heads if they've seen Taiko before. This is what I was thinking. The shape is a lot like a barrel, like a wine barrel. And since it's got that really big resonant cavity, it's got a very deep booming sort of sound. You'll see these a lot in Shinto shrines and Buddhist temples, and there can be various sizes of these. Kodaiko, Chudaiko, Odaiko, which basically just means little drum, medium drum, big drum. <laughs> and those Odaiko, the big ones, can be as much as six feet in diameter. That's or a big drum. 180 centimeters, that is pretty big. There's also a thinner type of Bio Uchi Daiko, the Hirado. Hira means flat, so that's more of a flat version of that. And there are a bunch of different sizes of that. So that's Bio Uchi Daiko, the ones with the heads nailed to them, right? Mm -hmm. There's another category called Shime Daiko. Paul, did that uh, ring a bell to you at all in your research? Shime Daiko? Uh, isn't that like the their kind of version of the snare drum? A little bit smaller? Yeah. We mentioned this before in the Geisha episode. Geisha would be trained to play the oh, Shime Daiko. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember seeing them do that. Yeah. So these, like you said, are going to be smaller. And the way that the head is attached on these ones is very different. So you have the animal skin head still, but it's going to be stretched over this metal ring before it's even attached to the shell of the drum. And then the heads are placed on either side of the body of the drum, and they're attached to each other using ropes. So instead of being attached to the body, they're actually tied to each other, and that's where the tension is coming from. And you could adjust the tension of this rope to adjust the tautness of the head and change the pitch. So these ones you could tune. Yeah, that makes sense. And those ropes, that's the traditional construction method, but a lot of times these days you might see them with metal bolts holding them together instead, which makes them even more easily tunable. Yeah. And the way these are going to sound, they're going to be much more high-pitched and clear than the Bio Uchi Daiko. So you can get much more intricate rhythms out of these, and you don't have the big booming sound, so separate strikes aren't going to blend together as much. You know what I mean? Yeah. So these ones are important for controlling the tempo of the ensemble, because they're very clearly heard above the boom of the other ones. And again, there are a bunch of different varieties and sizes of Shime Daiko. So those are the big two categories, but I have a couple other ones I wanted to mention just because I thought they were really interesting. There's one called the Suzumi Daiko. 
This is similar to the Shime Daiko in the sense that you got these two heads that are held together with ropes, but the body in between them has sort of an hourglass shape. It's going to have a deer skin head, and this is interesting. That head is supposed to be exposed to moisture for the best sound. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so players will actually breathe on the head to keep it moist, or maybe even put some spit on there. So that keeps the head more elastic, and you can change the pitch of the drum by squeezing those ropes that are holding the heads together to like adjust how tight the head is while you're playing. That's cool. Yeah. That's cool. That's nice innovation. Yeah. can produce four distinct sounds depending on how it's played. It's a very recognizable sound. If you've heard any kind of kabuki or no theater or, I don't know, just the sound of this drum is very recognizable as like a Japanese drum. This is also the only type of taiko that's struck by hand instead of using sticks. Mm, interesting. Yeah, so you don't usually see this type of drum in kumi daiko, the big ensemble performances, but like I said, you do see it in no or kabuki or folk music too. There's another interesting type of drum called the uchiwa daiko. This is my last one, I promise. So an uchiwa is a traditional Japanese fan. And I'm not talking about the folding fan. This is the type of fan that's like round and flat and it has a little stick handle coming out the end of it. So it's like a fan, but it's not collapsible. Yeah. Okay. So this Uchiwa Daiko looks exactly like that. It's got a little handle and then a round head attached to the handle, but it doesn't have a shell. Like there's no body. There's no resonating cavity. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Interesting. So it's just the skin, just the head. Right. Just stretched over this circle with a handle on it. And this would be held in one hand and struck with a drumstick held in your other hand. Okay. And I saw originally this was used in religious services in Nichiren Buddhism. But in recent years, I saw they've been showing up in taiko performances as well. But I'm really curious to see how that would be able to project over the other types of drums, you know? Yeah, I don't know. Okay, so that was the last type of drum I had. But I still have some more fun facts about those heads. Yeah. The part that gets stretched over the shell. So for different types of drums, they can use different types of animal skin. And each of those different types will give a different tone. Generally, the types that are used are cowhide, horsehide, or deer skin. And I saw that for cowhide or for bovine hide, they would use either the skin of a cow, the skin of a bull, or the skin of a steer. And Paul, I'm sure you know the difference between a cow and a bull, right? A cow is female, and a bull is male. Yeah. Do you know what a steer is? That is a male cow that they uh, sterilized. Ah, oh, very good. It's a castrated bull. I didn't know that before this. But So the difference in tone between these types of skin comes from the level of testosterone in the animal. So bull hide is thick because they have a lot of testosterone. So that type of skin is going to be used for bigger drums. But steer hide, hide of a castrated bull, is actually more like cow hide than it is like bull hide. It's going to be thinner and give a more uh, higher pitch to be used for more of the smaller drums. Isn't that interesting? That's uh, disturbing. (laughs) Okay. Kind of interesting, I guess. (laughs) I mean, I hope they're not castrating bulls just to make better drums. They probably are. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Okay, well, I thought it was interesting. 
I also thought it was interesting. You know how they remove the hair from those hides? They soak them in water. Yeah, it sounded like maybe this is more of a traditional thing. It, I don't know if they have different methods these days, but I saw that they would soak them in a river or stream for about a month. Preferably in the winter when the water's cold. Yeah. I guess that helps. Yeah, I guess you can't just shave them or burn off the hair or something. Maybe it's better if it just like naturally releases the hair, you I know? I think you gotta get the roots out too. Yeah. And that falls, when the whole thing falls out, you get more of that. That would make sense. So all these different types of drums can be played in different ways. Depending on the type of the drum and the situation it's being used in, they might be placed on a stand. It could be slung over your shoulder. Some of them are played sitting down. Some of them are played standing. A lot of times you see people kind of dancing around while they play them. It really depends on the situation and the type of drum. But most of these are played with bocce, which are a type of drumstick. But they're not like Western drumsticks. In the West, drumsticks are usually cylindrical, but they taper at one end, and there's like a little bead at the end that you're using to strike the head with. Mm -hmm. What are bocce like? Usually they look thicker to me. And Usually, they, but they can be all sorts of different weights and sizes and lengths and thicknesses. Yeah, they're kind of just a stick. Like it doesn't, there's no bulb at the end or anything. Yeah, and there's no taper. They're the same thickness all the way through. So they're perfect cylinders, except that the ends are slightly rounded. Yeah. And like I said, different sizes. You can also use different types of wood. And all those different sizes and thicknesses and different types of wood will get a different tone out of the drum. So you can really affect the sound of the drum based on what type of bocce you use. They have different grips for the bocce as well. There's standard grip, but there's also variations that are supposed to make it easier to play some technical pieces. But it was hard for me to read and understand exactly what made the grips differ from each other. Yeah. But are there different grips in American drumming, like rock band drumming? Yeah, there's a probably seen traditional grip where the two hands hold the sticks very differently. Like the right hand would hold it between the index finger and thumb and the other one would kind of have it, I don't know how to describe this without visuals, but it's almost like sideways, like it's coming out the side of your hand instead of kind of up and down, if that makes sense. Yeah, if like you sense. put both hands in front of you, one hand's facing down and the other hand's facing up. Yeah, 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 exactly. I think I've seen like on snare drums or whatever, people doing that. Yeah, you might see that in like an old style where somebody's got the drum hanging from their shoulder and it's kind of at an angle. Oh, like if you okay, see a Civil yeah. War reenactment or something, yeah, they'd be yeah, okay. playing it like that. Okay. It's called traditional grip. And then there's matched grip that's like perfectly symmetrical. Both hands are holding them the same way between the thumb and forefinger. Yeah. So it seems like there's some similar things to that in Taiko as well. So if you want to go watch uh, some Taiko, it's probably going to be a Kumi Daiko performance that you're going to see. Yep. Remember, that's that ensemble style that's really popular all over the world these days. So let's talk about a little bit what that's going to look like. Okay. Well, there's a huge variety of styles depending on the specific group, depending on the country where it's being performed, depending on the region of the country. Some try to keep it more traditional. Some try to make it more modern, incorporating pop elements even. But if we're going to be general, you have a group of people. That's pretty universal. Got a group of people. Yeah, yeah, you need a group. Yeah, and they're usually going to be dressed in traditional clothing. 
there's a lot of variety here. A lot of times they're wearing something called a hoppy, which mm-hmm. is a thin, straight coat. You'll see people wearing that at festivals too. That might be a place you'll recognize it from. Yeah. And you'll often see hachimaki too, that Japanese headband. Yep. Yep. There could be sweating, so that headband uh, might help. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're also likely to be wearing uh, momohiki, which are loose fitting pants, a little pants bit of the traditional good. style. Yep. And sometimes even uh, haragake, which is a working apron. Okay. But you see a lot of shirtless guys too. Yeah, I noticed that. <laughs> so each person's going to have a drum, or they might have multiple drums. Right. Or I saw in some performances, people would be situated between a couple drums and they're kind of moving back and forth. So people are kind of sharing drums. Yep, definitely seen that. Uh, and there are a variety of drums. Like they're not all the exact same type of drum usually, but the same type of drum will be kind of grouped together or spread out in a line. You might have the bigger drums in the back and the smaller drums in the front. They can be organized in different ways. Mm -hmm. And each type of drum plays a different role in the rhythm. But the people playing the same type of drum are usually going to be synchronized. So it's really, there's a visual effect that's created where you can see a group of people kind of putting their hands up and slamming down at the same time. But it's sort of syncopated with the other groups of people playing different types of drums that makes sense. Yeah, it's all choreographed to yeah. look cool and sound cool. Yeah. You can even create different tones with a single drum, depending on what part of the head you're hitting or the angle of the stick when it hits the head. Paul, did you see a lot of times there's like the Odaiko, the big drum. There's one of those at the very back a lot of the time. Yep. With either one or two people pounding on that, and that's going to obviously create the biggest booming kind of sound. I heard one of the big exciting things about seeing a performance is that you can feel those vibrations throughout your body. That's always one of the cool things about percussion. Yeah, yeah. So once they start playing at the performance, you're going to notice that it's going to be loud. It's going to get fast. It's going to be hard. So it's uh, quite the energetic performance. Yes, very lively. Should we talk about kata? Definitely. So kata is the posture and movement associated with a taiko performance. Right. And this same concept is used in martial arts a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I saw that the motion of swinging the bachi, the sticks, can be compared to the motion of swinging a sword even. Yeah. There seems to be a lot of crossover between martial arts movements and taiko. Yeah. I mean, you're moving around so much, it's really important to keep your body stable. Yeah, that's one of the most important parts of kata in drumming. Yeah, and in martial arts. So you'll have like a really wide, low stance. Some of these guys I saw in the videos, their legs are super wide. They're really low and they look just rock solid, you know? Yeah, that athletic stance, knees bent, getting down a little. And I saw it's really important to keep your hips facing the drum at at all times. And you're supposed to use your whole body, not just your upper body. Like you're putting all of your energy into those sticks. Yeah, your shoulders should be relaxed. You should be powering from your whole body, yeah. not just wailing away with your upper arms. Yeah. And if you see a performance, you can really tell how important this is. Like people will raise their arms up really high before a big downstroke. And the way that their motions are synchronized 
and syncopated with other people's motions. Like it's almost hypnotic to watch, especially with that solid beat. Like it's, is there a better word than hypnotic? No, that's kind of a good word. It's almost trance-like, you know, this just constant rhythm booming along. I mean, that's kind of like, like dancing. You hear the beat, you just kind of keep going. Yeah. That's a, it's a very human thing, I think. Yeah. And a lot of people are actually like dancing in a way while they play. Some people might be sitting. I saw even sometimes when they're sitting, it looks like they're almost dancing while they're sitting, you know? <laughs> uh, and shouts. Shouts are incorporated a lot too. I mean, mo- you know, the main instrument obviously is these drums, but you'll see people shouting in unison, similar to how you might shout in martial arts. Some similarity there too. Yeah. It adds a little like energy to the performance, I feel like. Mm-hmm. But. I saw that it could also be used as like a cue for a transition right. or to increase tempo, but it also could just be encouraging everybody to play or just for the show as well. I thought that was cool. Totally. But there are other instruments sometimes too. It's going to be mostly drums and mainly drums. And sometimes always. I mean, yeah, sometimes it can be only just drums. drums. Yeah, absolutely. They sometimes use other percussion instruments, such as like a hand-sized gong. Seems mm-hmm. to be a little bit popular to get that nice gong sound. Yeah, I saw some performances where there was some sort of metallic sound that's like ringing out over the drums. In kabuki, specifically, the shamisen, which is a plucked stringed instrument, is often used with the taiko. Mm-hmm. And uh, in kumidaiko, they sometimes feature woodwinds. I saw an ins- uh, video today where they had some flutes cut in for a little while, and it was kind of cool. I didn't see any like that, but how did they make the flutes cut through the booming drums? They, they mic- slowed down the drums. Oh. Like most of the drums cut out, and I think only one section of the drums kept playing. Huh. And there were three flutes, and they were all playing a little bit off of each other. So it was really like multiple layers. It was pretty cool. Interesting. Are we talking like Western flutes? uh, No, it didn't look exactly like Western flute. It was wooden. It was like a small wooden flutes they were playing. Okay. I wouldn't know by looking exactly what they were. Yeah. I enjoyed it. Then it went right back to the big drumming. Cool. So maybe you're hearing this and uh, you think it sounds like it'd be cool to try out. But maybe you're also thinking, oh, I I don't know how to read music. Well, that's actually not a problem because you don't need to know how to read music to play taiko. This is a an oral tradition, like it's taught orally and through demonstration. Historically, there were patterns that were written down, although they wouldn't have been written in modern musical notation anyway. But like you would never find a full score for a taiko piece anyway. You'd find a collection of patterns that you could refer to, but they could be strung together in different ways to make different pieces. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you learn these patterns just by listening, and they would describe these patterns by using onomatopoeia, which are words that describe and sound like sounds. So the system was called kuchishoga, and they would use words like don. Don is a deep, booming single strike. Or if you're doing two successive strikes, you might call those doko or doro or dogo. So you got your instructor up there just going, don doko, don doko, don doko. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, that's how you learn it. That's that makes sense. Yeah. Or dope is a short single strike that doesn't resonate. There are a lot of different words that people could use, and those would vary by region. But the point I'm trying to make is there's a sort of spoken language that you could use to talk about these drum patterns. Yeah, and I'm sure they would show you, when I say do, this is how you make that sound. Right, And then you can follow along and, and learn everything. Yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, that's nice. So I want to talk just a little bit about taiko around the world. Okay. It's starting to become kind of popular. There's active taiko groups in Australia, Canada, and the United States. And the Cirque du Soleil, I don't know if I say that right. I'm not good with French. But they've had a couple shows that featured taiko performances. Nice. I've always wanted to go to one of their shows and never made it. I feel like I did see one somewhere a long time ago. I've always heard good things. Yeah, I remember being impressed. A lot of acrobatics and stuff. Yeah, yeah. There's been TV commercials in the U.S. that have used Tyco, and the Academy Awards and the Grammy Awards in the past have both had Tyco performances. Sweet. So yeah, it's gone a little mainstream, something that a lot of people have seen before. Totally. All right, so last thing I want to talk about is Tyco happens to be involved in some cultural issues. Yeah. I thought it was kind of interesting. Yeah, cultural and social movements, you could say. Yeah, that'd be a good way to say it. So men have been very dominant in Japanese history, as we've alluded to before. And this was the same in the world of Taiko. But throughout the 80s, the 1980s, women became more and more involved in kumidaiko. And I read that by the 90s, there were perhaps even more women than men involved in it. Yeah, there was the excuse used for a long time and still even kind of used today that, oh, it's so physical that women's bodies can't handle playing taiko as well as men. Yeah. But women are playing now and proving that they can do it. So that's awesome. I saw an article from the LA Times in 2002 said that about two thirds of the taiko groups in North America were composed of women. Awesome. Yeah. And it sounds like A lot of the motivation behind that was to help shed the image of women, especially Asian women, of being subservient, quiet, meek, those kinds of things. Yeah, because Taiko's so energetic and loud, you're kind of, it's the opposite of what you'd expect, maybe based on those stereotypes. Yeah, they get to yell and be really powerful and, uh, you know, it's a type of empowerment. Yeah. I heard even before the 1980s, not just Taiko, but it was uncommon for women in Japan to perform on almost any of the traditional instruments. Men were keeping a lot of that Mm. to themselves. But it's since changed, so that's moving in the right direction. Another social issue associated with taiko involves a class of people called the burakumin. This is a group of people that was at the bottom of the Japanese social order ever since the Tokugawa era, the 1600s. This class is made up of people whose occupations were considered impure or tainted by death. For example, executioners, undertakers, butchers, and tanners, which would include people who make the drum heads for taiko. Yep. This class of people throughout history have suffered a lot of discrimination, which lasts even to today, which kind of blows my mind. 
Yeah, officially, they're not legally discriminated against anymore, but they still face social discrimination. Mm -hmm. Things like scrutiny by employers or not wanting them to be married into their family. Yeah. Stuff like that. Yeah. So drum makers have used the success of Tyco to advocate for an end to this discrimination. There's actually a road, the Taiko Road, in Naniwa Ward of Osaka. That area is home to a lot of Burakumin. And that road is decorated with symbols of the Taiko industry and their culture. And that road leads to the Osaka Human Rights Museum, which exhibits the history of that class of people and the discrimination that they have suffered. Yeah. And I think museum touches on other different groups in Japan that have been discriminated on a little bit too. Mm. So that seems like a cool place to go visit. Yeah. And it's nice that they're uh, making some positive strides there. Yeah. Class systems always seemed so wild to me. Yeah. Not that every society doesn't have class, but just the fact that you're born and it's like, you're in this class and everybody knows it. And you're never going to be able to leave it. Like, whoa. Right. And it can take a long time to break away from that, even once it's not technically like institutionalized anymore. You know? Right. It's still in people's heads yeah. or in the cultural memory. Mm hmm. Uh, so the last cultural movement I want to talk about takes place in America. Mm -hmm. And that's the Japanese Americans reconnecting with Taiko, I suppose you could say. Yeah, I mean, Taiko has been really important for Japanese Americans to celebrate their culture. Because back in World War II, of course, Japanese Americans were sent to internment camps in the U.S., and then even after the war ended, they were really discouraged from practicing their culture, speaking Japanese. They were kind of forced to assimilate into American culture. But in the 60s, the civil rights movements were going on, a lot of that sort of thing. And a lot of Japanese Americans started getting more in touch with their heritage. Taiko groups started popping up as a way to embrace and celebrate their culture and to oppose the stereotypes and expectations of society which at the time saw Japanese Americans as quiet, passive, and stoic. Yeah, similar with how the women are using it today, I guess. Yeah. In the Japanese way, yeah. men were showing it to use, like, we could be strong and loud and... Kind of shows a more powerful... So I, it's a different image for Japanese Americans. Yeah. I saw there is a famous social scientist, Hideo Konogaya, his opinion I thought was kind of cool. He sees a difference between Taiko taking off in popularity in Japan in the 50s and then in America in the 60s with totally different reasons. Hmm. He says in Japan, it was to reconnect with the past and capture those sacred traditions. Whereas in America, it was more of a way to represent the Japanese Americans' men's power and masculinity mm -hmm. to maybe make their place in society or whatever they were looking for, that equality. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, that was kind of cool. Kind of started becoming popular in both places around the same time, but for different reasons. Yeah. Either way, it's awesome, and I'm glad it's around. Ditto. <laughs> I'm with you. I don't really have anything else. You got anything, Jason? I do. I was going to tell people how they can get involved if they're interested. How can you do that? Well, like I said, there are groups all over the place these days, so you might not have a lot of trouble finding a nearby group if you want to join. 
There are hundreds of groups in the U.S. and Canada, many more all over the world, especially in Brazil. They have a large Japanese population there, mm-hmm. Australia, Europe. So I found there's a website, taikosource.com, and they're trying to track all known taiko groups. They have a, a world map on their website with little pins representing all the different taiko groups, and they're that's cool. all over the place. Yeah. Yeah, so that's a good place to find one. Also, taiko.com has lists of groups in different parts of the world with contact info. So if you're interested in getting involved, you can look them up that way. Or even if you don't want to get involved and you just want to see a performance, look up a nearby taiko group and see when they're performing. If that's too much work, you don't want to actually have to leave your house. There's a lot of good stuff on YouTube. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of really cool performances. And you'll see a vast variety of different styles. A lot of cool stuff out there. And if you're visiting Japan and you want just a little taste of what it feels like to play a taiko, check out your nearest arcade. Because there's actually a really popular arcade game in Japan called Taiko no Tatsujin, which translates to Taiko Master. Paul, have you played this game? No, I've seen it a bunch. Is it good? It's a lot of fun. It's like Rock Band. Remember that? You can drum along to a song. I really enjoyed Rock Band until they put the foot pedal in on the drums, and I just couldn't do it. That adds a whole other dimension. (laughs) But these ones, it's pretty simple. You just have this taiko drum. I mean, it's a controller. It's not going to sound or react just like a real one. But you can drum along to songs. The red circles come by, and you hit the middle of the drum, and then the blue circles come by, and you hit the edges of the drum. Pretty fun game. You can just try it out, have a little fun drumming. Yeah, that sounds cool. Yeah. That's all I got. All right. Well, next time, we're going to be talking about baseball. I'm so excited. It's springtime. That means baseball. And baseball is very popular in Japan. So we are going to talk about baseball in Japan. Jason could not be less excited. (laughs) I'm I'm a a bit less excited. I'm not really into sports, but uh, I'm excited that you're excited. And... It'll be interesting to see how baseball in Japan differs from baseball in the U.S. It definitely does a bit. We'll get into it. Yeah. All right. Well, I think this was a good episode. This was fun. I really like digging into this. And I think, as we mentioned before, this topic was suggested by a listener. So to that listener, thank you. This was a really good topic. Yeah, I learned quite a few things. Yeah, me too. And to the rest of our listeners, if you want to suggest a topic... Maybe there's something you want to learn a little more about. Or maybe you just want to reach out and let us know how we're doing. Maybe tell us about something cool that you experienced in Japan. Maybe you just want to say hi. You can reach out to us by sending an email to feedback at sightseeingjapanpodcast.com. We would love to hear from you. All right, well, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.